0: The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Let me remind us quickly as we stand before God's word as the people of God this is the central activity of what we do. We gather our lives around the word of God. We find our identity in the word of God. We find our ultimate provision in the word of God. So let's gather now and hear God's word in Psalm 8. Verse one, David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? God, I ask now that you send your spirit to help me. I ask that you send your spirit to help us receive your word. Make it clear. We pray and plead that you would honor Christ among us today, that you would make him clear and beautiful and glorious. Cause us to treasure this word in our hearts and in our lives. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. It's a hymn of praise. It's David extolling God's name. He wants us to recognize how beautiful and good and glorious and majestic and all these other synonyms for how great God is. He wants us to see and to recognize that and to love him. You see, Psalm 8 is placed in a particular spot. If you recall the last few weeks, if you've been here, we've been in the midst of something called a lament psalm. A psalm of lamenting over sin, of being sorry and sorrowful over our sin. There's been five that precede Psalm 8. And as soon as we get to next week, we'll recognize we're going back into five more psalms of lamenting over sin. And yet here in the middle, in the exact middle of 10 lament psalms, we find Psalm 8, a hymn, a phrase concerning how glorious God is. You see, the psalm, we can some, sometimes forget, the psalms are so big and there's 150 of them, we can forget that there's order and there's purpose. The editors of the psalms put it together on purpose. It's broken down into five individual books and we're in book one in Psalm 8 And it's here on purpose. You see, and the purpose is this, in the midst of lamenting over sin and dealing with sin and being grieved over the brokenness of our lives, the most important thing we can do is remember who God is. The most important thing we can do in the midst of hardship and hurt and loss and suffering is remember God is majestic. In its historical setting, God gave Psalm eight to Israel through King David. It's in the midst of lament Psalms. It was meant to remind them that God is majestic in the midst of suffering. And it was meant to tell them there's something greater coming. There's a salvation coming. For today, God has given us this psalm through Christ, and I hope to show you that. He's given it to us through Jesus. It comes in the midst of lament psalms. It's it's intended to remind us of how good and majestic God is, but it's also to remind us of a great salvation that Christ has already accomplished. So whereas David and the Israel was looking forward to what God would do, we are now remembering and celebrating what God has done in Christ So that brings us to our first point that I want to highlight, verses one and two, and again, verse nine, a confession of God's glory in the world. David begins this way. He writes, O Lord, our Lord. Could also translate that, O Lord, our sovereign. O Lord, my personal God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And you'll see again in verse nine, he says the same thing. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This forms what's called an inclusio, which is a fancy word for the word frame. He wants us to see you look at this through the frame of God's majesty in the world. If we're going to understand the purpose of this Psalm, we have to understand it through the lens of God's glory in the world. So the main point of the Psalm is this the glory of God. And just as a spoiler alert, that's the theme of every chapter, every book, every verse in the Bible, God's glory. And so David is by the Holy Spirit framing for us a particular message in Psalm 8 about the glory of God. Its message is to steady us in the midst of grief over sin. It's reassuring us in the midst of hardship and suffering that God remains majestic and is pointing us to Christ. And it does so through pointing us to the world. David is reflecting on God's glory in the created realm. He's talking about the world, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, it's very common for us as as men and women to look at the created world and find awe and wonder and majesty in the world. If we look at a majestic landscape, one of my favorite places in the whole world is Biltmore House. If you've never been, shame on you, you should go. But if you stand on the back porch the Blue Ridge Parkway is framed in such a way where it's awe-inspiring. I just want to sit there all day. It's beautiful, and I'm taken with the view, and I have pictures on my phone. It's actually the background on my iPad, that view, because it's beautiful. When we walk beside the sea, we often find ourselves quiet and reflecting or just taken with the vastness of how beautiful the ocean is. It quiets our minds. It brings peace, serenity. If you stand atop the Grand Canyon, we're often awe, there's often awe inspired by how big it is, by how deep it is, by how expansive it is. When we look at the night sky, we wonder how far does space actually go? You see, we all at the world, we are wanderers at the world, and God intended it that way. These moments create a profound sense of wonder in us, but they also create a profound sense of smallness. When we consider how vast the mountain range is, we often consider how small we are. When we are gazing at the night sky and seeing just how wide and deep and expansive the night sky is, we're reminded I'm standing on one patch of dirt and the universe is so incredibly large One pastor reflected on God's creation saying, if we traverse a silent valley where there's rocks enclosed on both sides, rising so high that we can only see a strip of the blue sky above, we may be the only person to have ever passed through there. And yet, he says, God is there in a thousand wonders." He's filling up the flower cups with their perfume that we might enjoy. He's refreshing the trees with the breath of his wind. He is painting the Blue Ridge Mountains blue so that we can enjoy them. Have you ever considered why God extends to us the grace to enjoy the world? Why God extends to us the ability to see these beautiful landscapes, to notice the the intricacies of how nature works, Have you ever considered that you are aware even of these things? You see, God created the physical world to show us his presence and his power. He wants us to see from the world that he is, and not only that he is, but that he is active and that he is with a father's heart caring for the world. In Romans 1, Paul reflects on this saying, the attributes of God are clear in the world. They've been made clear, namely his divine power. And it's clear to anyone who sees the world. You see, Romans 1 is not written to a Christian. It's actually written talking about Christians and non-Christians. God made the world in such a way that we might recognize his thumbprint on it, his fingerprint in it. And so when we come to a psalm, a piece of scripture like Psalm 8, where it says, "O Lord, and then David writes, Our Lord. This is a deeply personal psalm for David and thus the people of God, that the God who made the sea and hems it in and keeps it from coming too far, that the God who crafted the mountains and made them beautiful, that the God who threw the stars into space and keeps them there, that God is our God. The God who sustains, who created the world by the word of his mouth in Colossians one says that he is actively right now sustaining that world. That God is the God of the gospel and the God of the people of God, the church. So we ask why has God allowed us to see him in creation? Why has he allowed us to awe and wonder at his creation? It's so that we might find him. See, in our sinfulness, we often stop short of, of recognizing this ultimately tells me how great and glorious God is. We find ourselves pausing at just wondering at the world. Wow, it's a beautiful mountain scape. Wow, it's a beautiful sky. Wow, this is a beautiful ocean. But God created these things in such a way that we might know Him and love Him, and we might hear His glory proclaimed from the world. There's something else important to note about that pronoun, that plural pronoun in verse one, our. God is intimately involved with his people. We're not worshiping a distant deity. We're not worshiping a God who set the world in motion and then stepped back and just let be what would be. He is intimately involved in his world. He's intimately involved in the lives of his people. And he wants us to recognize, and he wants us to be able to say with David, yes, God, you are my God. You are our God. But we would be amiss if we did not see the ultimate purpose of this Psalm, which is to glory in Christ through the gospel. You may not see how I would move from glorying at a mountain to now glorying at Christ, but I hope to show you that through the next few minutes. But here's what I want to give you a foretaste of, a preview of It is in and through Christ that the world was made and is sustained. It is in and through Jesus that the people of God, that is the church, it is in and through Christ that the people of God are formed, are sanctified, and will be redeemed. It is in and through Jesus that the people of God become the community of God and ultimately find their true identity. It is in and through Jesus that the people of God find their true and ultimate glory. And finally, note this, Jesus himself is the primary means through which we receive God's provision and through which we experience God's presence. Look at verse two. David writes, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy. That means to put down the enemy, to thwart the bad stuff. God is undoing, he's beating the bad guys through babies, essentially is what that's saying. What a thought, because our world doesn't work that way. If you look at the movies, it's always the good guy who's stronger than the bad guy, who comes out in the, as the victor in the end. But God is saying, no, he's establishing his strength through weakness, such as that of babies and infants. This is also part of God's glory in the world. The recognition that God's sovereignty, when we say, oh Lord, our sovereign, we're confessing that God is in control of the world and that cannot be undone. That's part of his glory. That's part of what makes him majestic for us, his people. That's part of why we in the, in the midst of hardship and suffering can say, yes, God, you are indeed majestic. Psalm 46 notes that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So if we're gonna understand these, what he's saying, the babies and infants as establishing strength, we need to think about that some more. This could be understood literally that God is out of the mouth of babies, establishing strength and putting down foes as when God's people, Israel, were conquered through the Babylonians. You see, Israel in that moment is the the infant, the baby, the helpless one. And they were conquered by the enemy, the big bad man, Babylon. And yet what brought salvation to the people of God? It wasn't that they rose up from among themselves. It wasn't that they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They prayed to God and pleaded with God, Oh God, save us. And God through Israel's weakness brought salvation. We can also understand this as a metaphor, that the babies and the infants symbolize human weakness and helplessness, that the enemies and the avenge, avengers symbolize human cunning and strength and self-assertiveness. It's also that part of the world that fails to recognize the power of the name of God. So when Israel's receiving Psalm 8, Let me just remind you of some of the things in Israel's history. In Egypt, God brought them out of Egypt, not through their own strength, but through their weakness. He established them as his people through weakness by overthrowing the Egyptian empire through the weakness of Israel. When he sent Gideon to conquer the armies, he said, you're taking too many people and you have too many weapons. I want you to take 300 men and smash some pots and yell. And through that, God caused an army to turn on itself and be slayed. If you recall Samson, what ultimately brought Samson victory? What ultimately brought the judgment on the Philistines? It wasn't Samson's strength. Samson found himself weak, blinded, and chained between two pillars. It was because God, in his grace, executed judgment through weakness. How does this apply to the church? 21st century church. You see, the church is a community of broken sinners who are being restored in Christ. We are broken apart from the gospel. We are broken and lost apart from Christ. And if that's not where we're finding our strength, then we are not looking to Christ. But let me remind you of a few things about the church. The Lord Jesus came as a carpenter and spent his ministry mostly homeless and wandering and depending on others. The church began some 2000 years ago with a small community of men and women who were hiding in an upstairs room because they were scared. The gospel was achieved, that is the salvation of men and women, according to the will of God that was brought about through the crushing of Christ. God put him to grief. An event which the Pharisees and Satan interpreted as their own victory and yet it became their own demise. See in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, Paul says that God brings, or empowers the weak things of the world to overthrow the strong. He uses the ignorant things of the world to undo the wise. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast in my weakness because when I am weak, that's meaning in Christ, then I'm strong. What's the point of this? What's the point of this verse? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. The point is to remind us that while the world often looks powerful and overwhelming and consuming, God is not moved. God is not wondering how he's going to continue saving his people. He's not up in heaven wondering, how am I gonna get them out of this one? Or he's not thinking to himself, I did not see that coming, how can I respond? And not only is God not doing those things, he is so actively in control of the world, including his people and those who would come against him. He's so actively in control that he is establishing his purposes through the weak and infantile things of the world. It's a paradox. Our world doesn't operate that way. The strong man always wins in the world. And yet God says, no, I'm establishing my strength through the weak things of the world, through humility and dependence. And we see that most clearly at the cross. Secondly, I wanna focus on what's a lesser point of Psalm 8, which is the glory of mankind. That God establishes his glory in the world, in the created realm. God wants us to have awe and wonder at his world, but he also wants us to have awe and wonder at his created person, mankind, the people that he has created in his image. So we ask, how do verses three through eight apply to man as a creature? David writes in verse three, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? How often when, when, when you're looking at a mountainscape or walking by the sea or looking up at the sky, how often do you have the thought, God, why, why are you aware of me? Why do you care for me? You've made this majestic world. You've made these beautiful things. Why is it that you are aware of me? You see, man is endowed with the ability to reason and to think. We are self-aware creatures. We are the only self-aware creatures in all of creation. But we also need to recognize that we're some of the weakest creatures in all of creation. There are things in the created realm that have far more power than we do. The sun has an incredible amount of power, incomprehensible almost. And yet the sun doesn't think it just is. The grizzly bear is alive, but it has no idea that it's a grizzly bear. It just is what it is, and it functions according to its nature. And yet we, as mankind, not only recognize that we are mankind and distinct from the world, we have that God-given ability to ask, why am I different? One pastor from history said, man is a reed. He's talking about a blade of grass. Man is a thin blade of grass, but he's a thinking reed. I can look at the world and I can see the incomprehensible force of some of the things that God has created, but I can also recognize that God has created them. He's given us that glorious awareness to think. And verse four says, through our self-awareness, we're able to comprehend that God is aware of us. Verse four, David says, what is man that you are mindful of me? I look at the stars, I look at the ocean, I look at the world and I recognize these are beautiful things, but You're aware of me. You care for me. How does God care for man? Well, he gives us life. He gives rain upon the earth. He gives food. He gives society. He gives good gifts to all of mankind. And this is a part of his common grace to all mankind, Christians and non-Christians alike. But to Christians, to his people, he gives his covenant presence. He gives his word. He dwells with his people. And to think by his grace, we are aware of these things. Verse five says that he's made us a little lower than the angels and he's endowed us with the gift of his image. That's what that means, a little lower than the angels. He didn't give his image to the angels. He didn't give his image to the animals. He didn't give his image to the sun and the moon and the stars. He gave his image to man. And if you recall Genesis one, he says that we are very good. This is also a gift of common grace to all mankind. In verses six to eight, it says that we have dominion over the world. All things have been put under our feet. But it's important to know that while all these things are true of us, they are not fully true of us. They cannot be fully true of us. For in verse three, in our self-awareness, we do not we need to recognize that we are created in God's image and ultimately meant to give glory to him. We often spend our self-awareness on making much of ourselves. And verse four highlights our mindfulness that God has given us. And yet instead of being humbled to praise, we often concern ourselves with asking questions like, God, why me? Why would you let this happen to me? We puff ourselves up in pride and forget that no, God is majestic in the world and that this is his world and I am his creature. And we fail to pray prayers of faith like God, please sustain me as I go through this hardship. Verse five highlights our royal status as image bearers. That's literally the idea in Genesis one, that God has made us royal because we bear his image. We bear his crest, we bear his likeness. And yet in our sinful desires, we rebel against the very one who made us. In verses six or eight says that God has given us dominion over the world and he's put everything under our feet. But what are the lament Psalms that surround Psalm 8 about? They're lamenting the fact that we don't have dominion, that we fail to have dominion. James chapter three, verse seven says, that man can tame everything in the world, but he cannot tame his own tongue. We can tame everything in the world, but our hearts, we can't tame our hearts. I can tell you from having three children at home that dominion is not fully exercised. If you have, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And while I attempt to exercise dominion, I'm confronted day in and day out. And so is my wife that we do not yet have full dominion. And so while Psalm 8 is about the glory of man in some ways, it can't possibly be about the glory of man in other ways. And so there's got to be more. There's got to be something else that this psalm is pointing us to. You see, in Psalm one, we read, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. We read that and ultimately saw that the one who doesn't walk in sin or stand in the way of, or doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers is Christ. The one whose ultimate delight is in the law of God is Christ. Christ is the ideal man of Psalm 1 and Christ is the ideal human who is crowned with glory and honor in Psalm 8. pastor from church history reflecting on this is we've got to recognize that God has exalted man in two ways. First, he's exalted his humanity in that he actually has given us some of these things. We are self-aware and can recognize that God has created the world and that he's made us good and that the nature does exalt him and that we should glory in that. He has given us dominion over some things. The fact that we can have architecture and sound and video, automobiles, those are exercises of dominion. And so in that sense, it's good. God has exalted us in that way, but in another sense, he's exalted us even further by joining human nature and divine nature in the person of Christ. Our ultimate exaltation is not in recognizing how good God has made man, it's in recognizing how great Christ is. Which leads us to our third and final point, the glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ in the same way as Psalm 1 exalts Christ, Psalm 8 is exalting Christ, which makes sense if we recognize the placement. Keep in mind, we've just come out of five lament psalms. We're about to go back into five lament psalms. How do we steady ourselves when we're being ravaged by sin? By looking to Christ. How do we hold on to faith when suffering won't let up? It's by holding on to Christ. How do we keep the faith? It's by recognizing that God's enduring presence is with us because of Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope we as the people of God have in the gospel. And what is this gospel? Paul says it's that Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that those who would repent of sin and follow him would have the salvation and the covenant presence and the promise of glory to come for those who would repent and follow. You see, it's only through reading Psalm eight through the lens of Christ that we begin to get a picture of what God is actually saying. In Hebrews two, the writer picks up on this theme and he's applying applying a Jesus lens, if you will, to our reading of Psalm eight. He takes it and he quotes it in Hebrews two. And then he says, this is ultimately about Jesus. Don't miss it. He who for a little while was made lower than the angels That's Jesus. How do we know? Paul says it in Philippians two. He says that that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's what that means. God, Jesus didn't count being God too much to hold on to, to take on humanity to accomplish the gospel. He set it aside for a time. He took on a human form for a time. He accomplished the gospel by going to the cross for sin. What drives us to despair? What drives us to hopelessness? It's sin. What drives us to doubt? Sin. What causes all the struggles and the problems in our lives? Sin. And that is what Christ died for on the cross. He put aside his full divinity for a time to take on humanity so that he might accomplish the gospel for you and I. Here's where we truly begin to see the covenant presence and provision of God for his people. We begin to see the actual glory of mankind as we see ourselves and find ourselves in Jesus. There's no other hope but by finding ourselves in Jesus. But we've got to make a distinction. There are two types of people Mostly, most likely two types of people in this room, those who know Christ through the gospel and those who know about Jesus. So many people find themselves as fans of Jesus. You know about him. You genuinely believe he has salvation. You enjoy his people and the benefits they offer. You hope to gain heaven when you die, but still you doubt You doubt because you know that while you like the idea of Jesus, you do not follow him. You know that while you participate in religious practices such as a Sunday church or a Bible study, it ultimately has no effect on you. You go through periods of doubt because you find in yourself little to no proof that says, I am a repentant follower of Jesus. You see the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is knowing Christ through the gospel, not knowing about Christ and the gospel. It's about being identified with him in his death, burial and resurrection and finding the hope that he gives through the spirit. So as we bring this to a close, I wanna ask you this question. What does it mean for us to live daily in the light of the glory of God? How do we with David say, oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Well, first it means recognizing the presence of God in the world. It means recognizing the world as God's own creation. It means seeing the world as a theater for God's glory. I told the last service, I stole that phrase from an old dead theologian, so he won't care, but such a helpful image. The world is a theater for God's glory. He's given us a front row seat to enjoy him every single day. We've gotten really good at enjoying the big things of God, the beautiful landscapes, the miracles, the good times. But when we recognize that all of creation is God's majesty, we begin to see the Monday morning when I don't want to get out of bed, when I don't want to go to work, when my children are being rebellious, when my life is in shambles. We often fail to see those are the theaters of God's glory as well. And it's not that God, why me? That's not the attitude that this Psalm creates in us. Through Christ, we begin to pray prayers like, God, sustain me in this, that I might come to know you more. God, sustain me in this, that I might come to love you more. This is why Paul writes things like in 2 Corinthians four sixteen: Though my body is wasting away, my spirit is being renewed by God day by day. What a prayer of faith. Secondly, and more importantly, it means recognizing our utter need for Jesus in all things, namely our salvation from sin and our lives of righteousness. It means receiving the provision of God through the gospel of Christ and resting in that promise, recognizing I can't do it. I can't earn salvation. I can't gain heaven based on what I do and how good I am. It means ultimately hoping in Christ alone for, the repent- for through repentance for grace, excuse me. It means knowing Christ through the gospel and it means uniting with Christ in the gospel. And so it is through that lens that we end the Psalm in verse nine and hopefully with David say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? God, you are a good and gracious God and we are a broken people in desperate need of your grace. And so this morning I pray for the man or woman who is here in considering whether or not they know Christ. I pray that you would, by your spirit, give them grace to repent and believe. Give them courage to repent and believe. Give them a longing to repent and believe. Remove all hope apart from the gospel. Lord, for your child here this morning, remind us, your people, that you are a God of covenant presence. You are always with us and that you have, through Christ, provided all that we could ever need. So God, it is in thanksgiving and joy and humility that we pray and give thanks in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.